today is Easter. And when it came to choosing a passage of scripture to study, I found it almost impossible to choose. There are so many passages in scripture which speak of this event, which is the central event in scripture, and indeed in all of human history. Listen, I'll read some passages and then we will look at one. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, that's what we'll be looking at in a bit. But first, let me read to you from one of the Gospels, from Luke. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleam like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed, like, seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And then this same man, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, we have the first recorded sermon after the resurrection and the ascension, preaches to the people of Jerusalem. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently, that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the entire chapter, in fact, deals with the matter of the resurrection. If you look at the first nine verses, 1 Corinthians 15, this is from an epistle. We've looked at a gospel, we've looked at the historical book, the book of Acts, and now an epistle. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. 
For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. However, I've chosen another part of 1 Corinthians 15 as our text. All of that is sort of background. If you look, beginning in verse number 12, Paul is dealing with a problem among the Corinthians. They believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they don't believe that they will be resurrected. So verse 12, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I think most of these passages are familiar to you. Um, And as I was preparing this, I couldn't help but wonder that as I was reading these passages, you might be thinking about what I said earlier on, and that is that the resurrection of Jesus is the central event in Scripture, indeed, in all of human history. You might say, well, I I think it's sort of an important thing, but the central event, how is that possible? I think a part of the problem is that when we read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, the first Easter, we come away thinking, and in fact, we may even tell other people, that the meaning of Easter is this. It It proves to us that there is life after death. Or we may say that it proves that Jesus is divine. Let's be clear, there is life after death, and Jesus was and is divine, but these, I think, are not the main points of the resurrection. Last year, we went through a series on creation, in which I argued that we need to recover a robust doctrine of creation. And if you will allow me to review a bit and tie it into what we're looking at today on Easter. When it comes to the matter of creation, if you believe that God created the world, the result is that we have creation, then you also have to believe that creation has a purpose. It has a telos, a Greek word, which means a purpose or an end. That is, we believe God created creation and he gave it purpose. Now, this is where we, I think, come to the first difficulty, and that is that many people think that the purpose of creation was creation itself. That It was sort of self-contained, and we failed to realize, in fact, that creation was created for a purpose. We imagine somehow that it was this purposeless perfection, that God created this perfect world, that there's no purpose, no reason for it. It's just there. 
And then, of course, Adam and Eve screwed up. They sinned, and so now everything is thrown into chaos. And then we have Jesus, who's coming to make all things right. Um, as we saw in the series, this is not the case. That God created creation with a purpose, and its purpose is the new creation. We should not imagine that when God finished creating, that that was the end of the story. In fact, that is, in many ways, the beginning of the story. God created creation so that it might, in fact, reach an ultimate purpose, which is a new creation. God created the world, and God gave it purpose. It was to grow into the new creation. And if you think about it, I don't think it requires a whole lot of thought, Adam and Eve were put in a garden. God made a special garden for them. That's where they were supposed to learn certain things. The whole earth was not a garden because, in fact, in chapter 1, God tells them, go out and subdue the earth. So the garden was a place to learn so that they could then go out and do what they were told to. In the same place, creation is a place, the earth is a place where we have been put to learn. There is an ultimate purpose, and that is the new creation. That's the first thing that we saw. The second thing is that creation and redemption are tied together. They are connected. They're interwoven. We shouldn't imagine that God created the world and everything is perfect, and then Adam and Eve messed up, and so now plan B, God brings in redemption to make everything right. As we saw when we went through the series, Moses is the one who writes the book of Genesis, and he tells us about creation. The question is, when did he write this? Well, as we saw, he wrote it after the Exodus. That is to say, after God had redeemed his people out of four centuries of slavery, he brought them to Sinai to make a covenant. It is there that we find Moses writing the book of Genesis. It is in the context of redemption that Moses writes about creation. How did the Israelites... How did Moses know that this was true? None of them were there back when God created the world. How would they know that it was true? They hadn't experienced creation as described. How could they know? Well, because they had learned, they had seen, they had experienced God's power in redemption. And because God had redeemed them, they came to see, they were able to see that God, in fact, had created the world. Because they had experienced and been participants in redemption, they could see the world as creation and that this is something that God had done. And both creation, we know has a purpose, the new creation, and redemption have the same purpose, and that is the new creation. As Christians, we confess that things are not as they should be. It's not the way that things have been in the past. The world is a place of suffering and pain. But when we confess that the world is not as it should be, this is rooted in the realization that God is in fact going to redeem the world. He is in the process of redeeming the world. And this conviction that God is redeeming the world changes or it should change everything about how we live in this world. Consider for a moment, if we believe that this is the way things have always been, 
we have no sense of creation, fall, and then God redeeming the world. If we think that this is the way things have always been, then we would live accordingly. We would simply accept it, that this is a part of it. You have conflicts, you have struggles, you have disease, you have destruction, you have death, and you just, just got to make a go of it. Try to do the best that you can. But we know that God, through Jesus, is redeeming the world. And so instead of being fatalistic, we live with trust, with faith, with expectation and joy that is anticipating the new creation. This has been God's plan all along. It got hijacked, if you will, it went off track with Adam and Eve's sin. But creation and redemption have always had the same end or the same purpose, the same goal, and that is the new creation. Otherwise, if we do not see this, if we do not accept this, if we fail to connect redemption and, and creation, then the world or becomes unreal. It becomes unreal. It becomes a place without meaning. It's simply the stage where we are, and we are actors on the stage, and then when our time is up, then we are gone. But this is not the case. As one writer put it, we may say simply that God works creation and redemption for this, the new creation. This is what the good news is. So Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John writes about things that will be in the future. He writes about the new creation. And one of the things, or the, actually two things that strike us is, first of all, there is a certain continuity because there are things we're familiar with, but there's also a certain discontinuity. So there will be no more sorrow, no death, no evil, no sea, no celeste, and the sources of light will not be the sun and moon because, in fact, God will be the source of light. So there is a disconnect, if you wish, a discontinuity. But there is, in fact, a continuation. If you look at Revelation 21 and 22, you read, in fact, that there will be the tree of life. And the last time we heard about a tree of life was, in fact, back in the Garden of Eden. So there is a continuity. I think what John is conveying to us in language that is symbolic as well as literal, is that the new creation is the culmination of God's purpose in creation and redemption. You're like, okay, that's enough of the review. What does that have to do with resurrection? There are those who call themselves followers of Jesus, and in fact may be followers of Jesus, who do not believe in the resurrection. They speak of resurrection, but rather they think of it as renewal. You know, spring has come, and we don't really have seasons here in California like other places, but in other places in the winter, things have died, and, and in spring, they come to light, life. And so resurrection is seen as that. It's renewal. It's like things sort of hibernated for a while, and now they are being renewed. There are those who argue that the early church so thrown off by the death of Jesus, and yet they continued to preach his message, and so somehow that became the resurrection, that Jesus really wasn't raised from the dead, but they just sort of lived as though he, or they worked and, and lived as though he were still alive. 
the reality is we cannot have the story of redemption, the story of the redemption of creation, apart from the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And one day we will also be resurrected. And it is here that we should be most clear about the connection between creation and redemption. In Romans 8, a passage I was tempted to use as a text today, Paul writes, we know that the whole creation, there it is, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption, and there it is, the redemption of our bodies. There is creation and there is redemption. The connection between creation and redemption in the new creation is clear and it is seen in resurrection. When God sent his son into the world, we in fact see a reminder of God seeking to bring together creation and redemption. Because otherwise, why didn't, why didn't Jesus just sort of parachute here to earth and if, all, if it was all about his death, uh, then die and then be raised from the dead? Or if he was supposed to teach some things, so sort of parachute down and teach a bit and then die and then be raised from the dead. No, he became a part of creation because there is a connection between creation and redemption. As followers of Jesus, we are to worship on the first day of the week. It is our participation in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Christ's resurrection, or Easter, is called the eighth day of creation. We know that there are six days of creation, and then the seventh day God rested, and Easter is seen as the eighth day of creation. Here, I think the Orthodox are so clear about seeing the connection between God's creation and God's redemption. We need to remember, sometimes we need to just be reminded that the resurrection is not something that happens somewhere else in some other place or some other time. It took place in this world, in this creation. This is God's creation. It's not something which takes place within the matrix of a fallen world. See, in a fallen world, as we saw, for most people, the telos is death. That is, the end of things is death. When you die, that's it. And so I find it strange that, that people who are atheists or who aren't Christians, they still sort of get sort of warm, fuzzy feelings around Easter because there's this sense of renewal that, oh, maybe there's something that's going to happen after we die. But generally speaking, people live as though when they die, that is the end of the story. This is not the Christian view. Death is not the end of the story. The end of the story is the new creation. And so while we are in this creation and God is redeeming us, we may in fact die, but we will be resurrected in the new creation. This is God's purpose, and it has been all along. The resurrection of Jesus proclaims throughout the entire universe that all things, to all things, that God is the creator and God is the redeemer. And on the eighth day, on Sunday, if you wish, we as God's people worship and we proclaim that there is, in fact, a creator, a redeemer, and there will be a new creation. 
We read this in the book of Revelation as people are praising God. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then later, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. In our worship, we declare that God made all things. They were made by him, through him, and for him. When Jesus began his ministry, he preached that the kingdom was at hand, that God was becoming king. When Jesus was crucified, he completed the work of redemption. And for some, this means they get to go to heaven when they die. But there's so much more to it than that. Creation and redemption point toward the new creation. How do we know this is true? How do, we, how do we know this isn't just some type of fantasy, that this is an Easter Sunday sermon to make us feel good and then we go home, but, it, but that it's not really true? The answer is simple, because Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me give an illustration. I didn't know if I should give it here at the end or at the beginning. I'll do it here at the end. Um, my mom when she had her eyesight, liked to read, liked to read particularly mystery novels. Uh, she liked Agatha Christie in particular. But she had this really annoying habit, at least for me, I find it annoying. And that is that she would read the first, or the last chapter first. So she finds out who, who committed the murder, and then she'd go back and start at the beginning and read the story. I recently discovered that it wasn't just with murder mysteries that she would do this, but almost every book that she'd read, she would read the last chapter first so she knows how it's going to turn out, and then she would go back and read the book. Now that she has lost most of her eyesight, she listens to books on CD. And you know what she does? She listens to the last CD first, and then she goes back and listens to the whole book. I think for most serious readers, and certainly for writers, this is appalling. That there's this whole dynamic in the telling of a story, the building up of tension, and then the, 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 the denouement, and then you have you know, the end. Um, and if you go to the end right away, you, you sort of destroy that whole structure. You just ruin the whole business. But what my mom does in her reading is what Jesus did on Easter. You see, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he came back as new creation. That's the end of the story, new creation. So he comes as new creation, the resurrected Jesus, into the middle of the story, if you wish, to say this is how it's going to turn out. By the way, I, I've never done this before, and I don't think I have. But I would imagine that if you read the last chapter of a book first, it would change entirely the way you read the rest of the book, wouldn't you think? I mean, there's no tension, there's no suspense, you know how it's going to turn out. The dynamic is completely different. This is what Paul keeps trying to tell us over and over again. 
we know, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know how the story ends. We've read the last chapter, which means that now how we look at the story should be completely different than from people who don't know how it's going to end. Now, we don't know all the details, but because Jesus was raised from the dead, we know that we will be raised from the dead. That there will be some continuity between the old us and the new us because Jesus was recognized by people. Um, but there would be a real discontinuity as well because he was able to appear and disappear and things like that. And some of it is still mysterious to us. But now we are not reading the story, if you wish. We are not living the story as though we don't know how it's going to turn out. We know precisely how it's going to turn out because Jesus was raised from the dead. Once you know what's going to happen, it changes how you view things. And Jesus being raised from the dead tells us this is how things are going to turn out. You see, God created the world. This was a project that he began. It was the beginning of a project whose culmination was going to be the new creation. It was going to grow up into the new creation. It got hijacked, it got off track, and then God, through his people, and then finally through Jesus, is putting things back on track to the new creation. But we don't have to wait for the end of the story to know how it's going to turn out. Easter Sunday is Jesus, the last chapter, if you wish, coming into the middle of the story and saying, this is it. This is what it's going to be like. With Jesus as our king, we know how things are going to turn out. Paul wrote to the Colossians, a people he had never visited, who lived in Colossae. And in the first chapter, he's telling them about the Lord Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The first part we get is the image of the invisible God. The second part, firstborn, we're not so clear about. For by him all things were created, we get that, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Okay, we got that. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Good enough. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And there it is. Paul's telling the Colossians, yes, we know that Jesus created the world. He's God. We know all these things. But then he says, he's the beginning. We don't have to wait to the end. He is by the way, the beginning and the end, but the end comes in to the beginning and says, this is what new creation will be like. It is worth noting that as Paul does, that we need to tie the cross in with resurrection. And it isn't simply that we needed Jesus to die so that he could be raised from the dead. It was in fact, he died to redeem and to pay for our sins. You see, God will not have a new creation 
that has sin, evil, corruption, decay, and death. These things with the possibility of still frustrating or thwarting God's plan. God would not begin a second time with something that could be derailed as it was the first time by human pride or rebellion or sin. The resurrection is possible because Jesus Christ defeated these things on the cross. So, to go back to my mom again, the whole experience of reading a book is different when you know how it's going to end. But that's precisely how it's supposed to be for us. We know how it's going to end, the new creation. And we know this because Jesus was raised from the dead. He who is the end of things came back in the middle of things. And there it is, the new creation. And that's why the resurrection is the central event in human history. From the time of Jesus' resurrection to the end of time, all things are different now. Because now we've read the last chapter. We've seen the last chapter. It's the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ. In closing, I would remind you of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If it's only in this life, if, you, if you're reading a book and when you get to the end, that's the end, then, then you're, you're sad. I mean, it's sad. But we know that the end is not, in fact, the end because Christ has come in and told us. And so Paul writes in the next verse, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the end of the story that is broken into the middle of the story. And that is why the resurrection is the central event and it is central to our faith. It isn't just like some type of magical trick or that he died and then came back to life, um, that he was resuscitated somehow. And in fact, there are people who have argued that, that that Jesus um, passed out, if you wish, on the cross, and then they put him in a, in a tomb, a stone tomb, and it was cold, and somehow the coldness sort of you know, resuscitated him, and he was able to go. No. As I've told you before, the Romans were good at killing. They had a lot of experience. They knew how to kill people. Okay. They had done their share of crucifying. When he was dead, he was dead, and they knew it. He wasn't simply raised to life. He is the new creation. The end of the story that breaks into the middle of the story. And now we can never, we should never see things the same. I don't hope, I don't ever intend to follow my mother's example of reading the last chapter first. But I'm, I have a sense that it must be a very different kind of experience. Actually, to be, to be honest, there are a number of books that I've read more than once. And so if I've read it a second or a third time, I know how it's going to turn out. The experience of reading it that second or third time is quite different. In the same way for us, as we live our lives, we know where this is going. 
we know how this turns out. Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's all headed toward the new creation. Let's pray together. Father, it seems that Easter is one of those holidays like Christmas in which even non-religious people participate. It's a time of joy, of renewal, um, things like that. Somehow, perhaps we've gotten swept away and we've forgotten that there is in fact a purpose that you created the world and was headed toward to grow into the new creation. And because of sin, redemption was there, but it also had the same purpose, headed toward new creation. And now that Jesus has come and has been raised from the dead, we now understand. We don't have to wait till the end of the story. It isn't some big mystery. There are things we do not understand, but the reality is it's all headed to the new creation as we see in Jesus as he appears to his disciples after he's being raised from the dead. May we as your people have a correct perspective and see things in the light of Jesus being raised from the dead. The end of the story breaking into the middle of things to help us understand where this is all going. I thank you that you've brought us together today to worship you. We do pray for the Avoy family and the passing of Joe, that you would comfort them for Pinky and her children. Um, I ask that you would give them peace. And now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.